0: Well, I do want to encourage you to be a part of the Closing Crusade meeting tonight and to take someone with you that needs the Lord. And I want to encourage you to get there just a little bit early tonight, too. Uh, Although there's overflow outside, I don't think it's going to be the best night to be out there. So you might want to get there a few minutes early. We're going to open our Bibles together to the book of Jeremiah the 32nd chapter, where we're continuing to study about Jeremiah's view of God in this prayer that he offers to the Lord. Not only in his prayer to God, but in God's response back to him, we learn a great deal about God. That's important for us, as we're going to see today. In Jeremiah chapter 32, we have looked at verses 17 and 18, And today we're going just to get into verse 19, but I'm going to back up into verse 18 to catch some of the flow, where he says, O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel. Great in counsel. And now turn to the New Testament, please, to the book of Ephesians. And the first chapter where we see a new testament counterpart to what we've just read briefly in jeremiah in ephesians chapter one beginning in verse nine god made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Today we look at this idea that God is mighty in counsel. Anyone with any sense or any reason can see that we do not live in a world that is random, that is left to chance. Now, I recognize that some people view life as a big chance. Some people view investing as gambling. And we have a whole so-called industry that is springing up around our country, around the, the idea of gambling, randomness, and chance. I think that that is popular, not only because uh, people like to take risks, and because it raises money for the state, at least the state thinks it does, but I think it's popular because the idea of randomness and chance is the whole philosophy of existence in our culture we have lost in our culture the idea that there is purpose to life and we need to get that back in our hearts uh, we who are God's people can lose that as well we need to come back to the understanding that the Word of God gives us that the universe is ordered that it is predictable, that it is constructed on laws and principles. We need to come back to what the Bible teaches us, that intelligence designed us. And not only us, but all of nature around us. We sometimes imagine that history is left to the arbitrary whims of people. or, as it were, the roll of the dice on the table of possibilities. The average person builds his life around this idea that there is a lady luck or a father fortune who are more real to them than the sovereign God who has decreed, in fact, the events of life. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is developing a biblical philosophy of life. Developing a way of looking at life that is thoroughly grounded in theology and what the Bible says to us about God. To do that, we have to strip away some of the stuff we get from our culture where the idea of randomness and accident and chance are constantly bombarding us. We have to strip that away and replace it with what the Bible teaches that life is ordered by a sovereign God. Now, because of our culture's view that life is random, there is a lot of anxiety in our culture. And the whole new religion has been built up around it, and new priests. The religion is called psychology. I'm not knocking all psychology, don't misunderstand me, but I'm talking about, well, let's just term it psychology-ism. Where, re- where psychology has become the religion of people. And the new priesthood are the psychologists and psychiatrists of our culture. If people have problems, that's the religion and that's the priesthood that they seek out. Not God and his word. Someone has poked a little fun at this new religion <clears throat> by uh, imagining this psychiatric hotline. Don't you like voicemail? Me neither. But it's one of those evils we kind of get into in our culture because of the pace of things and to try to make things convenient, I guess. Well, here is a, here's a psychiatric hotline. It answers saying, hello, hello. Welcome to the psychiatric hotline. If you are obsessive compulsive, please press one repeatedly. If you are codependent, please ask someone to press two for you. If you have multiple personalities, please press three, four, five, and six. If you are paranoid delusional, we know who you are and what you want, so just stay on the line until we can trace the call. <laughs> if you're schizophrenic, listen carefully and a little voice will tell you which number to press. If you're manic-depressive, it doesn't matter which number you press. No one will answer anyway. That <laughs> well, pokes a little fun at some of the psycho babble that uh, we hear in the jargon of our culture. Yes, this is a troubled age, and there are many reasons for anxiety when people don't know Christ, especially. But the answer is not found in this new religion. It's found in in, in God and in his revelation to us in the scriptures of what he's like. And the way God reveals himself is that he is a sovereign God. Now, if you will get a hold of this, it will fill your life with wonder, humility, peace, joy, and contentment. Well, that's not bad. In fact, if you could get that from a psychologist or a psychiatrist, he would be a wealthy man very fast. If one of these modern gurus could write a book guaranteeing that you would have wonder in your life, humility, peace, joy, and contentment, he would make a fabulous amount of money. His book would be on the New York Times bestsellers list as number one. But I want to tell you something this morning. The Bible will give you exactly that if you understand what it says to you about God, those things will mark your life and fit you for heaven. The Bible affirms that we live in a universe that is created and ordered by a sovereign God who has already determined the course of its history and has appointed the final day of judgment already. The time is set for the final judgment. Now, in light of that, you and I have a choice to make. I hope that you will see this morning that the most important decision you can make is to bring your life in the direction of what God's purpose is. Because you see, when we're born into this world, we're going the other direction. We're going against God. That's what sin is all about. And it takes a lot of different expressions in our lives, but it means going against God, going counter to what God wants. So the most important thing we can do is to bring our lives in the direction that God is moving. And when we do that, we'll find wonder, humility, peace, joy, and contentment in our lives. I want to think briefly about a definition of God's purpose. Jeremiah said God is mighty in counsel. That word counsel means advice. But by implication, it means not only advice, it means what comes out of the, the advice, a plan. It means that God is mighty in his design. God has taken counsel with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of that counsel, they have As the Trinity, God has devised the plan, the purpose. God's purpose, theologians call his decree. Not degree, but decree, D-E-C-R-E-E. You will see that term used here and there if you read books regarding theology or the Bible. The decree of God. It refers to God's purpose that governs everything. The Westminster Shorter Confession states it this way very succinctly. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will whereby for His own glory here's the key phrase He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass the purpose of God now, Jeremiah is expressing in his prayer faith that God is directing the, the history of Judah now, that's where he's living I remember and right now as he's, he's offering up this prayer the Babylonians have surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem the rest of the land is gone it's under their control Their vast army has surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They are beginning to build siege mounts up against the walls and eventually will take the city. God has already told Jeremiah this, and he has told the people. They didn't like it very well, but he's told them. Now in the midst of this pressure and this anxiety, if you want to put it that way, Jeremiah is praying and he calls God great in his purpose. He is reminding himself in his prayer that God has already established the track <clears throat> on which the, heel, the, the wheels of history must turn. God's already laid out the road and history will move in that direction. And yet, when God does this, it is important to understand that he is never removing responsibility from man for his decisions. You see, if you took that that point to the extreme that God has already charted the course for history, you might go to the point of saying, well, that means then that God has authored sin. And it does not mean that. God is not the author of sin. Man is still responsible for his choices. But that doesn't mean that God is the victim of what man chooses. Now, this presents a certain difficulty to our minds. We, We don't fully understand how these two lines of truth come together. It's called an antinomy. That is, an apparent contradiction. It's not really. But it seems so in our minds. How is it that god has decreed everything that's going to happen and yet man is held responsible for his moral choices in response to that there are some theologians who have called themselves evangelicals who are creating a new idea about god is very dangerous clark pennock is an example of that who in the past has written some very fine books but now has turned toward a, a kind of theology That is off base. It's not biblical. There's a book that he has co-authored with some others called The Openness of God which says, no, in fact, God really isn't sovereign after all. And God doesn't know what an individual is going to choose, whether he will choose right or wrong. And then God has to, to direct things after that person has made his choice. God doesn't know what he's going to do in advance. And God is not all-powerful. God is not sovereign. Uh, And and that is not biblical theology, I'm sorry to say. And so there are some great minds who have been in the mainstream of evangelicalism who, because of this apparent contradiction, have gone aside to false teaching. Now, we have to... Confess our humility before this whole idea. We don't understand it fully. But the Bible presents both truths side by side. God is absolutely sovereign and he has determined exactly what's going to happen in history. But in doing that, he has also left man with a responsibility for his own choices. We see this <clears throat> illustrated in a writing of a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. His name is Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as some people pronounce it. But I'd like you to turn there. It's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Now, just to save myself some time, I wrote down the page number. So if you have a Ryrie Study Bible, it's 1,398. Otherwise, you're on your own in this book of habakkuk now habakkuk as i said is a contemporary of jeremiah they're living at the same time the same situation the babylonians are threatening uh, he calls them the chaldeans they went by both names now look in verse six god is speaking now through habakkuk jeremiah's friend and he says behold i am raising up the chaldeans that's the babylonians the same evil people who were at the gates of Jerusalem, that fierce and impetuous people who marched throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They had fearsome armies, these Babylonians. There were worse ones after them, but they were the fiercest army known in human history up to that point. And notice what God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. They did not appear by accident on human, in human history. They didn't come onto the stage just stumbling in. God says, I have raised them up, because God had a purpose for them. And among their purposes was the destruction and the captivity of Jerusalem and Judah because of its sin. God's own people. Remember last week we said God disciplines nations by other nations. That's one way he does it. But now, having said that God is the one who is doing this, look down in verse 11. He explains in these intervening verses what they're going to do with their horses and so on, and how they will come in and and take them, take the the, uh, Israelites. But verse 11 says, Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But... They will be held guilty. Those whose strength is their God. You see what I'm saying here? In verse 6, God says, I am raising them up and they are going to discipline my people because of their disobedience to me. But God says they are responsible for what they're doing and I will hold them guilty. Jeremiah said similar things about a number of other nations as well as the Babylonians. Do you see that illustration? Peter says the same thing, really, in in Acts chapter 2, when he talks on the day of Pentecost to the uh, people there gathered at the temple, among them those who had crucified Christ, listening. And he speaks about the fact that Christ was delivered up by the predeterminate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. He says, this didn't happen by accident. God had determined ahead of time what would happen to Jesus. But then he turns to these people and says, whom you by your wicked hands have slain. And he goes on to indict them because of their crime against Christ. You see, God had determined what would happen, but they were responsible for the choice they made to reject him and to crucify him. You see my point? When we talk about a definition of God's mighty purpose, it means that God has in his sovereignty declared ahead of time where everything is going. But along the way, each of us is held responsible to God for the choices that we make. God is not responsible for our sins. Now, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, which is the second part of our text, because it elaborates a bit upon God's purpose. I want to talk about its character. And in doing this, I'm just going to go very quickly through several statements describing God's decree, God's purpose. First of all, it's a single plan. I think the best way to understand it is not that God has many different purposes, although that's true on level B the sub-level. But level A is that there is one overarching purpose of God. He says here in verse 11, according to the purpose, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Notice those words, by the way. We see predestined, verse 11, purpose, counsel, will, each of those words has a different shade of meaning, but all of them are talking about this same thing that we're talking about this morning, that God has sovereignly determined the things that are going to take place, not only in history, but in your life and mine. He's already determined it, and he works all things, in the direction of the purpose, the counsel of his will. We know that all things, what? Work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his, what? His purpose. I don't care what happens to you. I don't care how small the incident or how life changing it may be your life is ordered by a sovereign God and the fact that it's raining today is not because Paul was not a good meteorologist it's because God wanted it to rain today now don't tell him I said that he's not sitting here right now because I want to give him a hard time in the next service again but that's the truth If you have a flat tire going home from church today, get out of your car and say, Praise God. He's working out His purpose in my life. (laughs) That seems a little silly, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, everything that happens to you comes to you through sovereign hands. God is mighty in His purpose. And every little piece of it all relates to god's overarching purpose the first statement is it's a single plan number two this plan was formed in eternity past before the universe even existed god put this all together he knew you he ordered your life he knew the moment you were going to be born he knows the moment you're going to die Before he even spoke the world into existence, he determined to save you if you're a child of God. That's what it says in verse 4. He chose you in Christ before the world was even created. He knew you and chose you. You say, well, did God choose the fall of Adam? God made provision in his purpose for the fall of Adam. That doesn't mean that God's responsible for Adam's sin. Adam is responsible for it. Now we get back to that mystery, that antinomy. But God made provision for what he knew Adam would do. God knew Adam would fall. Just as God knows that if you had been in Adam's shoes, you would have done the very same thing Adam did. God made provision for the fall in his purpose before he even created the world. He made provision before he created the world for the Son of the Trinity to come into the world as a human being and to die as a sacrifice because of the sin of the Adam who had not yet been created so that that child of Adam who's sitting in Grace Church Roseville today could be saved from his sin. Before God created the world, all of this was already established. And then God carried it out. God's decree, his purpose included the creation and the maintenance of the universe, the appointment of times and boundaries for the world's nations, the length of human life, the manner of our death. God's decree includes the family and marriage, the propagation of children, human government, the choice of Israel and her future blessing, the creation of the church, which unites Jew and Gentile in one body, all of this. And God's ultimate purpose in verse 10 is defined as the summing up of all things in Christ. In other words, all of these events take place in human history. And just as though we were doing our arithmetic this morning, God says, I'm drawing the line and I'm going to add up everything and it's all going to add up to Jesus Christ. I'm going to sum up everything in Him. Another way to look at it is that all these events are gathered together and everything is going to be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He says, whether those things be on earth visible things or whether they be in the heavens the invisible to us angels demons the invisible things we can't see he says everything is going to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ everything is heading this is it everything is ultimately heading toward Jesus Christ's kingdom where he will rule over the entire universe which will be in submission to him. Now the third statement I want to make about God's purpose is that it is mysterious. As I've said, there are aspects of it that we cannot reconcile in our minds. We can't begin to comprehend it. But just because we can't understand it, we dare not deny it or try to explain it away as some of these theologians are doing. If we could get our little... brains around what God is doing it would mean we're bigger than God so it should surprise none of us that God is doing things that we can't understand if we could understand it then we would have created God but he's the creator and he's good enough to let us in on some of the things he's doing even though we can't possibly begin to understand what they all mean. Number four, God's plan is all-wise. That's because the God who has decreed it is all-wise. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul presents to us part of God's purpose related to Israel and the church. And when he's done explaining this to us, revealing it to us by the Spirit of God, he concludes by praising the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who can fathom, he said, what God is doing? It's all wise. Number five, it's free. What I mean by that is not that it doesn't cost anything. What I mean is that God does exactly exactly what pleases him. It's free. God has counseled with no one else. He didn't consult a psychologist to find out what he ought to do. He didn't write Dear Abby and get her advice, or you or me either. God has determined what he's going to do, and he has consulted no one except himself in doing it. He is independent of everything and everyone else. That's why he's holy. He's above and beyond everything, and that's why Isaiah cried out woe is me when he saw the holiness of god he saw how different god is than we are he does not adjust his plan according to human events but human events rather follow in the course that he has ordered number six We understand God's purpose, conveniently, as having two aspects. God's decreed will, his directive will, and God's permissive will. God's directive will is what he has ordered. God's permissive will is what he allows to, he brings to pass through secondary causes. And finally, God's purpose is all for his own glory. That's the seventh statement I want to make. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, you see the phrase a number of times, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of his glory. That, my friend, is the reason that we're here. That's the reason we've been saved. Did you know that? We in this culture that is so concerned about self-esteem have uh, begun to see salvation as something that God did for our benefit and we're the center of it well my friend it is to our benefit praise God for that but let me tell you something he's the center of it it is all for the glory of God not man's glory the focus of salvation is not man; it's God. And when God saves us, we bring Him the glory for what He's done. Now, I began by saying that if you could get a hold of what I'm talking about this morning and make a difference in your life, and I used five words to describe the difference. Let me explain how it may, how it works. <clears throat> I said it would bring wonder to your life if you could see how mighty God is in His purpose. Here's why I say that. Because it brings into focus the centrality of God and his glory. And it reminds us that even our choice of salvation was settled before eternity passed. And we just have to wonder at this and be in awe of it. We sing that chorus, our God is in what? Awesome. And that word is kind of a slang word these days. It's too bad because that word really ought to be reserved for God. We are are struck with awe at what God is doing. It will fill our lives, secondly, with humility. Why? Because it abases our pride and our tendency to think of ourselves as able to run our own lives. We're not. We're not. And when we try to do it, we're going to turn our, the ship of our lives into the stream against the flow of God's purpose, and we will head to the rocks. So how much better to get out into the flow of things and steer our ship in the direction that God is heading everything. Thirdly, it will bring peace to your life, because when we observe the tumultuous events in our world, and our own lives for that matter, we can know that God is governing all things. God is governing... If the Babylonians knock down the walls and enter into the city and destroy it and take captives away, we still know that God is in control. And if the walls of your life fall down flat and and you're carried away captive, as it were, by circumstances you can't control, listen, God's in control. And therefore, you can be at peace deep in your heart, even though outwardly your life may be filled with turmoil because of what we're talking about today. I said it would bring you joy, and I say that because this all-wise and all-powerful ruler who is mighty in purpose is our Heavenly Father and our friend who loves us and who is for us and not against us. That's why we can have joy. And I said you could have contentment. And I say that because God will care for you and satisfy you with what he knows is for your good and for his glory. So you can be be content in life if you understand that God is mighty in purpose. And so you and I are left with a choice to make at the end to accept what the Bible says and to adjust our philosophy of life according to what what the Bible says about God or to live in the misery and the ruin of the ideas of our current culture. And when we understand what the Bible says about God, we can then choose to, to turn our lives in the direction that God is moving. and that's what I want to ask you to do this morning. You say, well, I'm going to go the other way. Well, my friend, you can do that. <clears throat> God gives you that freedom. You are, are also responsible for that choice. And he's appointed the day of judgment when he will deal with you. Or, by his grace, you can make the decision to say, yes, I'm going to turn in the direction God wants me to go in. And when you do that, you will know blessing in life. You will know these qualities we just talked about. And when life comes to an end, you'll enter into the presence of the Lord and be rewarded, welcomed by your Father. Will you do that this morning? Will you submit to Christ's Lordship? Say, well, I'm not sure what God's wanting for me. I'm not sure what direction he's heading. Well, we, we all have big question marks in our lives, don't we? Well, we have a Lord who sees right through the question marks that we have, and He knows where things are heading. And So we can say in advance, Lord, I don't know that I'm trusting You. That's important for some of you here this morning to do <clears throat> Because your lives have been heading toward danger. And that ship is moving toward the rocks. And it's time to adjust the rudder and to bring yourself in the direction of what God wants for your life. Let's bow together in prayer. Almighty God, we worship you today as the one who is mighty in purpose, in your decree. And we have just touched on this vast topic that you have revealed to us in your word. God, write it on our hearts. However difficult it may be for us to understand, write it on our hearts that we may believe it and live in the light of it. And may each of us be surrendered to your Lordship today for whatever that may mean for us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I wonder if there's someone here who would say, Pastor, God has spoken to my heart this morning, and I know that I need Christ as my Savior. I've been resisting what God's wanted to do in my life. I've known I've needed the Lord, but I've put it off. I've had excuse after excuse. But today, I want to trust Christ. Maybe you've been down to hear Billy Graham this week, and you didn't go forward. You'd make a decision there. But today you're ready to do it. I want to ask you just to lift your hand where you are and say by that lifted hand, just be saying from your heart, today I am receiving Christ as my Savior. Is there one here this morning? Is there one? God help you to do the right thing. Well, is there a believer here today who's trusted Christ that your life has been moving in the wrong direction and by your lifted hand you would say today I am freshly coming back to this point of Christ Lordship I don't want my life to be going in the wrong direction I don't want to be going against what God has purposed I want God's will in my life and even though I may not understand it by faith I am committing myself to it and I'm submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord would you lift your hand? God bless you. Yes, thank you. God bless you. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. I don't know what that may mean for you. God knows and you perhaps have an idea. But you're doing the right thing right now, making that commitment. Anyone else? Let's stand together, please. And with our heads, bowed, I'd like for us to sing a chorus, Have Thine Own Way. Let's sing it from our hearts to the Lord. Have thine own way, Lord. words describing the heart of each of us as we leave here this morning, and may we know that we rest in sovereign hands, and may the fruit of our lives be changed by that assurance. May your grace and peace be upon all of your own, in Jesus' name, amen.